Happy New Year. <laughs> um, <laughs> hello, everyone. Wow. And that was welcome amazing. back to Cookie Pocket, episode 106. Uh, I am your host, Zach. I'm joined as ever by my fellow hosts, uh, Mitchell and Christian. And today is our third and final holiday special of 2023. Uh, this will be going out on New Year's Eve if everything goes according to plan. Uh, and today we are going to be discussing a, a little pick that I brought to the table called Whistle and I'll Come to You. Um, I chose this one, as I kind of mentioned at the end of our last episode, because this was sort of the, the short TV movie that caused a ghost story for Christmas uh, to become like a yearly show on, on the BBC. And I brought one of those to the table last year in The Signalman, and that seemed to go over pretty well. I watched it with the family. The family enjoyed it. So I thought, let's get this one on, in on the game. Uh, the premise is it's based on an M.R. James short story, uh, and it's very, very simple, at least in this adaptation. It's about a man named Professor Parkin who goes on a seaside holiday, uh, and while ambling about in a, in a cemetery, he finds an old whistle, um, which he blows and finds that he seems to be being pursued by some kind of intangible force. Uh, it, it's sort of like a proto-it follows in a way, um, but without <laughs> a lot of the really specific details that make it follows, it follows. Um, but let's, let's not beat around the bush. Uh, what did you guys think of Whistle and I'll Come to You? Well... I liked it, and I was sort of pleasantly surprised to like it, given your own rating of this, Zach, mm. uh, it being your pick and everything. But I enjoyed it, and I'm still trying to suss out how much of my enjoyment is because of how many films I'm watching currently and and this sort of... I'm, I'm sort of trying to adapt my focus on, uh, on film uh, because... Uh, in, in the recent past, I've, I'd, especially after I finished my semester, I'd just been watching so many movies in my free time because I wanted to, and movies are great. But I, I do find that it, it changes my experience of them if I watch so many in a short span. So uh, all this to say, I haven't been watching as many films lately. Still, still, I think, a few this week. But uh, this came... Uh, this is the only one I watched today, and I didn't watch one yesterday. Um and I, I enjoyed it, and I think maybe I had more patience to enjoy it because of that. But uh, at, at just like 41 or 42 minutes long, it's it's pretty short, but yet not a lot happens. I think you could probably argue that all of the events depicted could be depicted in 20 minutes if they really wanted to, if they if they had to. But I found a lot of enjoyment just following this this very British man around doing mundane things. I don't know why exactly that is. I, I guess he's a charming performer. I checked his, uh, what other films he'd been in, like uh, Labyrinth, and I have yet to see Barry Lyndon, but I guess he was in Barry Lyndon too. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just, I've, I very much like the way that he is fussed and um, <laughs> the way he interacts with the people and the settings around him and uh, the way he eats his delicious breakfast and, and this and that. So... <laughs> And not to say that the scares aren't effective, because they are. I, I really like the freeze-frame ending uh, quite quite a bit. Uh, I give this a 3 out of 5, because it's it's a TV movie that met the mark for me, that I enjoyed enough, and I, I mentioned this in my review, I, I feel like it's sort of a hallmark of a time where uh, maybe the film doesn't intentionally bore the audience, but the audience is content and patient enough to follow around a bored protagonist mm -hmm. uh, for some period of time in a way that 
maybe could feel aimless to some, but felt purposeful enough to me that it didn't impede my enjoyment. So three out of five. Yeah. Christian, you praise the star of this film. I, I should point out, I didn't notice this until after I had watched it, but Michael Hordern is actually a two-time Cookie Pocket alum. Um, he right. played Marley's Ghost in the 1951 version of Scrooge, oh. which was one of our very first holiday specials. And then he's in Where Eagles Dare. I don't remember him because I don't really remember that movie very much, but he's in it somewhere. <laughs> he was he was at the dinner table, I think. Okay. Was, I think he was one of the... Uh, That's where he know, belongs. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where they sup, he does. where they eat. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess I'll just summarize how I feel about this movie in sounds. Oh no, that's the entire movie. Yeah, I've summarized it for you. Um, yeah, so I I also really enjoyed this. I think a lot of what Christian talks about with following him is like the auditory cues mixed with the like. It's like the grunting is very paced out with what he's doing because it doesn't just feel like he's he doesn't feel like he's doing mundane things because not only do you have the like the measured anticipation of what is to come and how the the, the story becomes a ghost story but you also have the, like what he's thinking about you're always wondering because of that because of his uh, alma mater I guess or I guess because of his profession mm-hmm. as a Cambridge professor uh, that is what kind of fuels your thinking and wondering what he's thinking when he's doing the mundane things. So I feel like there's a lot more, a lot more substance than you would initially think um, coming into it. On the other hand, I would also think that trying to weave this into a ghost story was pretty fumbled, I think, mm, okay. probably at the halfway point. And I think that's kind of where the film really loses me. Uh, I think... I still gave it a three out of five just because of uh, there's a lot of, like how compelling it is um, leading up to the point where he starts to get really haunted. I guess after the first like quote unquote hunt haunting when he whistles and then the, the storm comes. And I feel like that's one of my favorite parts of the movie actually was when the beach scene with the, the figure that's kind of like bigger on the top and thinner on the bottom yeah. I feel like that's a really awesome view um, with like the moving beach it's kind of like a dynamic scene but like something very static and unnatural in it and I feel like that's kind of what made it really uh, compelling for me but leading after that like try, it kind of felt like alright now we actually have to like end this like we have to get out of our status quo of the, the hotel procedurals and just actually get to the, what the point of the film was and then now I feel like now it's kind of a little bit more generic. It's a little bit more like, uh, I mean, there's some pretty cool ideas. There's some really well-framed shots, especially with the the parts of the the hotel and the parts of, like, I, I remember that, uh, what's it called? That little, I don't know, it's like an overpass or like a little, oh, like little arch. thing you walk through. Yeah, the arch. Yeah. The, uh, a lot of the scenes with him walking on the beach where the camera's just still and kind of like, it's either, not fo- it's either stationary or slightly following him with his cane. Uh, him just kind of eating and grunting and thinking and and as the film progresses he's thinking and grunting a lot more and I think there's very subtle progression in that way Uh, and then like the auditory cues kind of just keep me going the whole time so there's a lot of like nuggets of of cool ideas here and I think a lot of the anticipation is is well deserved up until the actual like hauntings and and the floating sheet (laughs) on the beach and everything it's kind of like okay now we're just like Oh, it's a ghost story. Ah, okay. 
So that's how I feel about it. And I really do think that Michael Hordern was a really great choice for this. Uh, he has a lot of weird quirks in the way he talks and, and his little subtleties and everything that were packed pretty well into a 40-minute runtime. So overall, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought. Yeah, and overall, um, I enjoyed it a lot less than I thought. I had actually not seen this one before. <laughs> um, and I think I, I, I was discussing this with Mitchell before we recorded. I, I think I kind of put myself in a really poor environment to watch this film when I did. Um, because uh, after we watched and talked about The Signalman last year um, for, for our holiday special, because I think that one went out on Christmas Eve, uh, but it was recorded probably like a week in advance. After we talked about that one, uh, it went over so well, I thought, oh, well, I'll show it to my family and we'll watch it on Christmas Eve. And it went over pretty well. The family enjoyed it. And so this year, I, I think I got a, big, a bit too uh, big for my britches. And I thought, <laughs> I'll show this one to the family. They enjoyed The Signalman. Not quite realizing that I think the vibe is very different in this to, to, to what The Signalman does. Um, and um, pretty much immediately... You could tell that my family hated this. And I think just just watching something that you're interested in with a group of other people who are really, really not enjoying it, it, it just it affects your perception to the point that yeah. I, I came out of this thinking, well, okay. Um, and, and it ended up getting a two <laughs> out of five for me. I do kind of want to rewatch it with some distance from that event, though, and in kind of a new environment to see how my perception of it differs. Um, that said, I stand by most of the thoughts I wrote in my letterbox review, where I said that I'm really very surprised that this was successful enough to, to greenlight a whole series of ghost stories for Christmas, because it, it's very against the grain of something that you would expect to be successful on television, even in like the early 60s. Um, there is basically no real dialogue um pretty much everything is just mumbled and muttered and even when there's a scene where a character says something for a lengthy amount of time where they're saying something that feels like significant lines it kind of just rambles and goes off in a bunch of different directions that don't make any sense like there's a scene where michael hordern is asked do you believe in ghosts and as is true to the character i would say he goes off on this rambling tangent about Australia, um, <laughs> and it doesn't provide you with what could be like a grounded moment to connect with that character. Um, mm -hmm. And it's 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 very the story is very loosely kind of suggested instead of being told. And a lot of this clicked for me when I did some more research on Omnibus, which was the show that this was broadcast as a part of. Um, and it turns out. I had thought that this was adapted kind of as its own thing and put out on Christmas Eve on, in 1968, and it did so well, they started Ghost Stories for Christmas. That was not the case. This was an episode of Omnibus, which was primarily an arts documentary series, and it did so well huh. as an M.R. James adaptation that they thought we should start adapting more of these, and Christmas is a good time for them. But reading that this came from, like, a crew who made art films and documentaries kind of clicked and made a lot more sense to me in terms of what it was going for. But I kind of want to discuss that note um, and, and some of what I've just mentioned. We watched The Signalman last year. We watched this this year. I think they're two very different fish. How do we think the two differ? Specifically, I'd say in 
their intention to scare? How do we think the the horror differs between the signalman and whistle and I'll come to you? Hmm. Oh gosh, <laughs> this this requires hmm. me to remember the to remember uh, the signalman well, which I'm not sure that I do. The okay, signalman. We can also just assess the style of horror that, that, that this is going for. Because I do think, even if we don't necessarily remember what the signalman was going for, I think this is pretty unconventional um, in how it's trying to scare. Sure. Yeah, well, I, I think something that I enjoy is that, okay, the title is Whistle and I'll Come to You, but what I like is that it's not it's not like a Candyman thing where he like whistles and then the ghost is there. <laughs> I, I think it's more interesting that he's sort of, that there's this gradual sense to it that he has these nightmares and, and both of the beds are rumpled. And um, I, I think that's, uh, I think the sort of, and I'll come to you half of it is a lot more interesting than I'll appear and I'll kill you on the spot or, <laughs> or even I'll just appear. Um, th- this sense of foreboding kind of, um, gets baked into the more idle moments, um, I think. So, and I, I like that the whistle is is not really that significant. Like he, I mean, he blows it once, and it's in the title, but it's not like it. It doesn't feel like it's this all important talisman or um, a MacGuffin really. Um, after that whistle, because. Um, it just sort of begins the process of the haunting. It's not like he holds the whistle, so he's cursed or something. (laughs) So, um, I I guess similarly to how I I said that I found uh, amusement in, in his little quirks, I, I appreciated the, the pacing of the scares, though. I will say that some of the slow motion stuff, (laughs) um, played off as kind of funny to me. Mm, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and the way that the sound kind of gets distorted in a couple of those <laughs> made, made it feel like a, um, an ill-advised uh, social media video at, at times. But uh, with that exception, I, I like that the scares are paced out. I like that um, he, he's, uh, especially in the, in the final scene, um, somebody else kind of barges in on him and he's, at first, it seems like he's kind of shell shocked, or maybe he's lost some some mental capacity. But it's it's just like it it takes time for it to settle into him, and then that's the moment it does is when we're out. So I guess everything is a lot more measured and, and calculated in terms of timing. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely point out the major difference when it comes to the writing is that it's not a Dickens adaptation, mm. and that mm. there's a lot of thematically driven moments in The Signalman and a lot of the dialogue and events are centered around the messaging and and the major themes and like the time period and there's kind of I guess if I wouldn't want to say it's a MacGuffin it's not that surface level but it's definitely like the train and the 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 train tracks and all that is kind of like the setting is very significant to the story Mm -hmm. and the the obvious the occupation of being a signalman is very essential to the story. So there's a lot of greater philosophical messaging here. It's like you have to go through the work of pulling out whatever you want from it, but more or less it's kind of an account of what may have happened to this professor. And they're kind of just talking as they go along and kind of just doing things. And then there's a a little ghost mishap, a little, 
a little haunting action ooh <laughs> that happens in the middle of it. And I, I, I would say one of the things I really enjoy about reflecting on this film in particular is that it is a lot more realistic to what would happen in real life because mm. the film itself is actually difficult to explain. It's not like a campfire story. Okay. And I think that is kind of... It, 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 it's a it's a big drawback because it removes a lot of the potential substance that could be there that could make the make it a lot more of an actual cohesive story that's that's there's a lot of like moving parts to whereas in this it's kind of like a simplistic account of a haunting experience that this one man had at this one hotel in eastern England or whatever mm-hmm. and I think that is a style that is has a lot of really interesting and intriguing. Uh, ideas that you can pull out of it as an audience member, but for the most part, in and of itself, it's not a very substantive film at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very little that actually happens. It's kind of just you're witnessing this happening, and I think that's very intriguing. But I also, like I said, I think it loses out on a lot of potential in that way, uh, and I think that's where the signalman really shines more. Whereas, like the imagery actually means something, or like there's there's a kind of more of a reason for. The, the the camera angles there's a little bit more of a reason for the the dialogue and i think it's it's different but i think that's what makes the signalman ultimately more um more of an actual film <laughs> i guess <laughs> yeah and i think that that sense of observation definitely ties into the fact that this was part of like a, a documentary program this feels very like cinema verite there, there are some mm-hmm. documentaries from the 70s where the whole idea is we're just going to sit in this setting and we're going to watch what these people do, and we're not going to ask them questions or interfere at all. It's just seeing what they do is going to inform people what is happening in the situation. And that's that's the documentary part of it. And this felt a lot like that to me. Um, but I do kind of agree uh, with Mitchell. Maybe not... To, I think maybe I'm a little more negative about how I agree with it. But I, to yeah. me, that <laughs> makes it... Not that it makes it not as good, but it makes it... And I don't have "Is this a Christmas film?" written in my notebook because cl- clearly it's not directly <laughs> a Christmas film. But it makes it a less fitting viewing for the holidays, I think, because mm-hmm. the thing that I right. like about something like The Signalman or Ghost Stories for Christmas is I like that kind of um, that campfire story element, like you mentioned, Mitchell. I like that sort of like sitting down and the feeling of having a story told to you. Um, I like how dialogue reliant a lot of the signalman is. And I like kind of the aspect mm-hmm. of it kind of being about two people, two chaps who sit down by the fire and have a talk about a weird thing one of them once saw. Um, and perhaps if I watched that at any other time of the year, I might criticize it for being talky. Um, but I like sort of that coziness around the holidays. And I think it works a little bit better. I think if they were to do... Because I have not read the short story. I have not read Whistle and I'll Come to You. But from what I have heard, if they were to make a straight adaptation of that story, it might align to those priorities a little bit better. Because this feels... This feels almost very modern in kind of the way it addresses horror. It feels... uh, Dare I say a little, a little kind of like what A24 in a lot of their movies goes for. (laughs) Because it's less about we're going to scare you and more about we're going to make you so uncomfortable that at some point you're going to say, please just scare me already. Um, because at least in my <laughs> Out of tune violin sounds. So much, yeah. <laughs> um, because at least in my experience, <laughs> so much of this of just sitting 
and watching him eat and mumble about his tomatoes and Australia and talk to the dog and take a bath and go for a walk and pick up a bone. So much of it, <laughs> you're kind of just like on edge the whole time because you're thinking like something happened. Plot happened <laughs> now. Um, and that, that wasn't irritating for me, but it, it, it was, um, it was an eff- effective in a way that maybe I wasn't expecting or that I, I don't enjoy as much in the kind of thing I was expecting. Uh, I think there's a lot of similarity between this and a story from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Um, if, if we ever went to a scholastic book, for, book fair and picked up those <laughs> books, because one of those books has a story in it called The Toe, which is about oh, a man who finds a toe in his backyard and he cooks it into a soup. And he eats it. Uh, Don't ask me why. Uh, it's, it's a short ghost story. But then at night, uh, he hears something like whispering on the wind. My toe, give me back my toe. And slowly, <laughs> over a series of days, it comes for him and then shows up in his bedroom. Um, and I definitely think that kind of story, uh, I really like that story. And that story has that sort of campfire vibe. But it's all in the telling. And I think here the telling is very kind of distanced and abstract and artful in a way that maybe doesn't work for, for the season that in a way that I had hoped it would, um, Mm -hmm. which contributed to that two out of five. Now, if I watch this in May when it was originally broadcast, uh, reassess it, I, I, I may enjoy it more for, for what it is. Um, but let's talk about the the mumbling, because I have that written down. We've all mentioned kind of the mumbling and the odd little quirks that his character has. And it sounds at least like it wasn't as much of a drawback for you guys as it was for me on this viewing. But in that case, was there anywhere where the mumbling did kind of impede the film, in your opinion? Was there anywhere it felt like a drawback? Anywhere where you wanted more real, tangible information from this film? Mitchell, do you do you do you <laughs> Yeah, I'll say I'll say the one time I can for sure say was uh, when he's reading the inscription because I was mm. I was struggling very hard to understand what language it was because I knew I was like okay I'm just gonna default if a character is reading off of an artifact it's probably Latin and I think that's <laughs> what it was and then and then he read it back I think a second time later when he was thinking back on it in mm-hmm. his head which I do think is an interesting aspect of the film when he's when he's thinking back and like talking to himself it's it's used very not well, it's it's used a good amount and i think when it's used it's, it's worth it but yeah i i was very like okay who the is the who is what is what and then and that was that was kind of difficult uh, every other time i think the mumbling for the most part works i'm kind of a fan of it to be honest i think it it, it contributes to the overall atmosphere of, of the abstractness and, and distance that you're talking about, Zach. And I do think also being, I guess, on a vacation of sorts, like in a hotel, like on the beach, and, and he wants to kind of be alone, I think that aspect of the of, of his character is kind of helps contribute to that mumbling and, and just being an academic and, like, trying to figure things out. He mumbles to himself. Um, the The one other character that, like exclusively mumbles and I don't think we're supposed to know what he's saying. I think that's, that's fairly interesting. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of just showing the insignificance of, of what other people are saying to the character. So I think there's a good use of it. I think, I think there's, I think there's definitely a, a, a good enough purpose for it. I don't think 
I don't think really what they're actually talking about is fairly significant, except that one moment where they're actually talking pretty straightforward, uh, pretty well-mannered at the table um, when they're like, do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> I think that was a little bit on the nose, a little bit ridiculous, but yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of it. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel much the same way. Um, I feel like it's very purposeful, as Mitchell said, and uh, it, this also sort of factors into it not feeling very like a campfire story, but it's everything about it is very individual. And when he's mumbling to himself, it's not it's not clear if it if his mumbling has any real meaning to him or if it's just a habit. But either way, it's it's clear that he's just doing it for himself and, and not for yeah. anyone else. And that sort of factors into the very individual uh, viewing experience you have, especially through through this kind of protagonist. Um, I can't think of an of a specific instance where it bothered me or where I was desperate to 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 know exactly what someone was saying. I actually don't think I would have minded if it was used more in in other cases or if if it's used as a and I know in some places the mumbling sort of precedes speech and I I enjoy that as well because it's it's like when you're not not properly listening to somebody until they get to the end of their sentence. Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. illustrated well. So yeah, I think it's a good device. Okay. This is unusual. I'm, I'm, I'm usually in the minority. I'm not usually in the minority <laughs> on my own episode. So this is unusual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I do today. think, I think the mumbling works in a few key places, but I do wish, I kind of wish that when he talked to other people, he was a little more coherent um, I, I like. I wish that answer to "Do you believe in ghosts?" had a little more substance to it, um, because it, at least in my case, I'm looking for maybe a little more traditional kind of before and after to his progression, um, to his "I steadfastly do not believe in ghosts," and then kind of encountering this thing he can't explain, and that is there. But I think it would have been anchored a little more and perhaps a little more satisfying if we had and maybe it's even a performance thing but if we had more of kind of a solid rational look i'm a college professor i believe in facts and based on what i know i do not have enough evidence to believe in ghosts uh, from him in that scene rather than this discussion of australia and penguins and captain cook which doesn't really it introduces this idea that he thinks that ghosts are ridiculous, but it doesn't really lead you to view that perspective with any any respect, really. It, it doesn't lead you to kind of think, oh, well, this is a rational, logical man, which I think leaves <laughs> the ending scares with, with less impact. Um, and then additionally, in, when he uh, talks to the maids about the fact that both of the beds in his room are rumpled, I would have liked a, a little more of like a coherent reaction from him then. Um, in terms of, well, I couldn't have rumpled this bed because I only slept in that one. Because I feel there's a little bit of danger there of, not necessarily danger, but I I don't feel that he reacts to that in a way that leaves the viewer going, oh, that's strange. That's that's unusual. Um, It just kind of leaves the viewer going, that's unusual. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then, and then the movie (laughs) moves on. I, yeah, I don't, I don't dislike the mumbling, especially the first time it kind of comes into play when the, he walks into his room with the guy and he's gesturing to all the bits of the room and, uh, and that's over there. And this is over here. 
I think that one really works. That's that's almost like a very funny moment, I think, um, of them just communicating entirely through grunts. But a few key places, I think, if it, if it had been a little more rational, I think it would have really helped to, to, to complement it. Um, that said, that was kind of my, my, my final point on the film. I, I've come away from this discussion really wanting to watch it again. I definitely want to give it time, though. And I do want to watch the remake, too, because in 2010, they remade this with uh, with John Hurt in the lead role. Um, and apparently that version is a lot truer to the short story as well. So I'm, I'm intrigued to watch that. Uh, that said, do you guys have any final thoughts on Whistle and I'll Come to You before we move on? I guess I would say it's a very polite film in some <laughs> respects. And it, in a way where even though I enjoyed it, it's hard for me to anticipate a version of this that would get higher than a three from me um, without taking some of your notes, Zach, about mm. about capitalizing on those scares more. Um especially in the way he reacts to them, uh, even even if it maintains that sort of um, solitary protagonist feel. Um, but I, I'll just say I, I watched this alone, and um, I think that enhanced it a little bit because I was really, I, I didn't have to worry about anyone else's impressions as I was watching it. And um, it, it being the, the holiday season, I think it worked for me at this time of year because uh, even though I'm home with family, um, it's kind of, you know, it's a few days removed from Christmas and I'm at the point where I can sort of embrace my alone time again and yet also have free time so I don't necessarily have to spend all that time working. So it, I think it captured the tone of that state of being well and I think that's probably why I embraced it. But okay. um, all in all, I think I, I think I liked it more. I can't remember if I gave the Signalman a three or a three and a half, but I think I liked this more, oh. not not because it's better, but because it's, more unusual or or maybe it's just right for for where i'm at today but i i did enjoy it okay interesting i'll definitely second a lot of what christian said i think there's something to be said about purposeful aimlessness when it comes to trying to convey a message about like just general morality and like very general abstract like ideas of ghosts and I think it it really just falls on if if there is no messaging that's significant and there is no like plot then I think a lot what what this film relies on is is fairly substantial in what you hear and the 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 procedural actions of the main character and I think that's kind of what makes it the most interesting also we didn't really talk too much about the location but i think the location really speaks to a lot of what makes this more intriguing and i think the having the beach be a lot more foggy when he's in the dream like i immediately i mean not just the fact that he was opening his eyes and closing them throughout the entire <laughs> dream but also i think like i immediately could tell that he was in a dream state and there's there's i think this the settings really spoke for themselves i think that being in kind of like this foreign-ish place and being in, in like not in his usual academic circle and not being able to express himself and kind of being very recluse and with his own thoughts is serves the the idea of him just picking up a whistle and being haunted mm -hmm. very well. So I really enjoy that concept. It's short enough where you really can't be mad at it and like, you know, throw, throw your shoes at the screen for being <laughs> mad. 
at, at a bad ghost story, um, unlike some A24 films. And I'll say <laughs> that I, will, I think when Christian said it was polite, I think that's a really, really apt description. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's it's a little, little, you know, little thing you can watch by yourself, make you want to go to England and not mess with the gravestones. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I will agree with your points about the location, Mitchell. I think that, mm-hmm. and I think that adds to its Britishness as well. There's a grand British tradition <laughs> of going on holiday and hating every second of it. Um, and I think <laughs> this does really kind of lean into that angle of like he goes on holiday by the sea and just sort of walks around and eats sandwiches and complains about his breakfast. Um, and that does feel very charmingly British. Um, and I should say, I think the three kind of the two big scare moments are the dream and the ending. And I think those do really work for me, uh, partially because of the slow-mo and the weird sound that you mentioned, Christian. But they're so off-kilter. They do kind of feel like something out of a dream, or they, they feel like, they kind of feel like that perception that you have in the middle of the night when you wake up at like two in the morning and water tastes different and everything's kind of foggy and then you wake up mm-hmm. at like six and you don't know whether what you experienced at two was real or a dream i think it does a good job of capturing that um kind of the best scare in the whole thing for me though is um one that i don't think is mentioned nearly as often but right after he finds the whistle on the beach he's walking away and there's like a wide shot with um it, it, like a, a distant kind of silhouette and it could be a post, it could be a person, they don't really clarify, but just kind of the eeriness of that distant figure, I think is a, a very, very creepy visual. Uh, as anyone who's mm-hmm. seen any film I've ever made will know, I'm a big fan of distant observing figures who watch people <laughs> from a distance. So that's a shot is that, what that you do, I, Zach? I really Are you projecting? appreciated. Um, it's, it's still got the two out of five for me, but I there's, there's an eagerness to come back. Uh, and that said... Let's move on, I guess, to the week in review. Uh, what have you guys been reading, watching, listening to, uh, experiencing since our, our last holiday special on Christmas Eve? Lots. A lot of, <laughs> lot of things. Um, things. I'm going to take it back to a little over a week ago and talk about a student film that I watched, um, but not by someone who's still a student. Now, now quite a well-established uh, Hollywood director. <laughs> Um, but some context first. Um, I've been frequenting the Cleveland Cinematheque a lot uh, since moving to Cleveland, as I've mentioned on the podcast before. And uh, early in December, they had a very special screening of Grease uh, in its 4K restoration. Special because the director himself, Randall Kleiser, was there in person mm. and uh, did a Q&A and an introduction and signed books and was very generous with his time and his insights. And it was a very neat experience. And... Um, I did get his books, and, and they're outstanding, but uh, maybe more on that later. We'll see. But uh, I noticed on, on the back of one of, this, one of his books that his, uh, I guess, thesis film when he was at the USC film school uh, was added to the Library of Congress, which I thought, hmm. wow, that's, that's quite an achievement for a student film. So uh, sure enough, it was on Canopy, our, our favorite streaming service, <laughs> and uh, it's called Page. And I wasn't sure what to expect. It's it's only 28 minutes long, but it sort of uh, details a, a family's visit to uh, an ailing um, grandmother at a, at a nursing home. Uh, and it was a, a challenging watch in, in ways. And 
this family, I guess, had it was uh, three sons and, and their parents visiting the grandma. And there are flashbacks to um, one of the kids and his kind of warmest memories with the grandmother. And, um, you know, ha- having having some, not, not congruent, but let's say um, similar experiences, uh, I think it, it captures that space of, of wanting to be there for a family member and... Um, not everything is there like it used to be, and, and it's just a, a very painful thing. But uh, at the same time, I felt like it, it captured this thematic purpose that was more than just, look at how much this sucks. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was more uh, to it, and y- you get a really strong sense of, of the relationship that the grandmother and the grandchild had in, in only 28 minutes with not at all well-established actors, because it's a student film. And um, yeah, I think I think Kleiser is, as a has a good eye for for what to draw attention to visually and must have given good notes to his actors because um, they, they play it up very well. And yeah, I was very touched by it. I ended up uh, giving it a four. I think it's it's very prescient and yeah, it's you know it's it's a challenging watch, but it is kind of a holiday appropriate watch because uh, they visit uh, this grandmother um, around Christmas or, or during the holiday season and they give her a gift. so there's it's a, uh, I think a very strong and, and purposeful way to capture, maybe the more difficult parts of the holiday season and what it means to be part of a family. But uh, I really admired it. I was glad to have watched it, and uh, yeah, that's that's Peach, and it's on Canopy, so it should be accessible to most anyone with a library card. So okay. there you go. Uh, as an absolute heathen who is not seeing Greece. Uh, are there any other prominent oh titles from from this director that uh, that our listeners and I might recognize? <laughs> I can't um, believe you haven't seen Greece. I have not I, seen gotta, Greece. Let me get over no. this first. Well, let's see. Uh, Kleiser has also directed The Blue Lagoon, Flight of the Navigator, okay. White Fang, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, oh. Big Top Pee Wee, and you know a few other things. He even directed a a theme park, uh, Honey. I did something to the kids. Oh, oh okay. I don't. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> Steady on now. All right. <laughs> you know what I mean. Come on. Yes. I think they closed down that ride. <laughs> <laughs> they did. Well. Are you done yet, Christian? Yeah, I, oh, I'm I think done. so. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Okay. Well. Back in the day. MGM Productions mm-hmm. made a lot of Bond films, right? Mm-hmm. They made a lot of stonks, right? They had so much stonks. They were like, what are we going to do with all these stonks? <laughs> what do you think $315,000 of those stonks went to? Hmm? Hmm? I have no idea. I don't any, know, any, but any, I'm any sure you'll tell us. <laughs> yeah, how'd you know, Christian? You are astute. <laughs> um, they saw um, the epic Dr. Seuss uh, story how the Grinch stole Christmas, and they were like, we have to spend $315,000 to adopt to adapt this and <laughs> televise it now. Um, and it was worth it, okay? It was worth it. I'm disappointed in you two for not reviewing How the Grinch Stole Christmas, because <laughs> it's an amazing Dr. Seuss story. Um, yes, uh, it is a Christmas staple in the household, and I think between Boris Kor- Korloff and freaking every aspect of the animation and the 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 christmas spirit ball star 
coming in in replacement of the tree and all of their oh, yeah. millions of dollars of lost belongings. I think I think this is a great TV special. I think I think the animation really stood out because we had just watched Frosty after this, and Frosty mm. had come out a few years after, and that's on the meager pickings of Rankin and Bass, right? So um, you got MGM behind you on Cat in the Hat Productions. You will make an amazing animation and some really great Japanese animators. Um, and I think that is kind of the reason why this film's the film, this TV special sticks out so much to me because I, it, it it's 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 like it's okay. It's a simple like kids story, and it's not it, like the, the moral turnaround is very very short, right? Like the Grinch has been holding this grudge since World War One, and he freaking all of a sudden he, he steals all their shit, and then he's like, wait. They're still singing. I guess Christmas is real. <laughs> so that's basically the story, right? But but there's so many little tidbits. I think the the inter- integration of the narration with the Grinch talking is a great touch. I think it really works for the duration. I think it's short enough where it doesn't feel like like the the story is anything more than a Doctor Seuss story. It doesn't feel like um, what's it called the the Cat in the Hat movie with. Um, What's his name? Mike um, Myers. Mike Myers. <laughs> yeah. Um, see, that that's just like a full-blown, like, spend every dollar, get 10 back in merchandise kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that that's... It, it's very charming. I think, obviously, hand-drawn 2D animation of that period is, is charming to us as nostalgia bait, obviously. And I think... But I, I do think that the coloration is really great, uh, especially watching it on a 4K TV. I think it, it looks especially great and um it's just a cute cat in the hat special and it's it's got a lot of christmas spirit in it and it's got a lot of like whoville references and quirks and stuff that you would expect uh and i think it's a really great adaptation i think i really don't think it could have done any better i'm sorry jim carrey but i think (laughs) i think this is superior and i uh i don't really have much else to say i mean I think Cindy Lou Who was no more than two, and, you know, <laughs> Christmas is at all of us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think you have to apologize to Jim Carrey. That that movie is gross. It looks disgusting. It's, it's not fun. Also, yeah. um, I, I, have to mention, I have to mention this is, like, the worst animated physics I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Every single scene is something that makes absolutely zero sense physically. Uh, and... Yeah, I, I just think, I don't know about the budget. I don't know. I, I still was reading it. I don't know how that was even possible, like how much they really wanted to invest in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a reason why it keeps getting replayed, and I do think it's 100% a staple. And, yeah, it's a lame like, little kid Dr. Seuss story. It's not going to be substantial, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's cutesy enough and has a lot of really cool animated quirks. Obviously, the song is one of the most significant parts of it yeah. and that whole sequence uh it's just a very engaging tv special and and it, it definitely trumps a lot of animation that comes out now so <laughs> that's definitely always gonna be a positive yeah we used to watch that every year when it came on uh on boomerang i still remember where the commercial breaks <laughs> wow. were. um yeah but I, I think as with the rest of us i've been uh consuming a lot of christmas material around around this time a lot of holiday material I could talk about The Snowman, which I watched for Christmas on uh, Christmas Eve for the first time this year. 
But I think I'm going to hold off on that because the snowman was so good, I might want to bring it back for a future holiday special. So I'm going to put my mm. thoughts on the shelf for that right now. And I'm probably going to make Christian angry because I have been listening to Frank Sinatra. Uh, and Yay. yesterday I listened to a couple days late, but yesterday I listened to his first Christmas album because he put out like three studio Christmas albums in his career. Good. The first one is <laughs> Christmas songs by Sinatra. Uh, if you can believe it. Um, and I think uh, this was put out by Columbia. There's kind of three distinct phases of Frank Sinatra's career. There's when he signed to Columbia, which is like his early career. Uh, there's when he signed to Capitol Records, which is sort of where he becomes a leading man. And then there's when he signed to Reprise, where he's kind of the main figure on that label it's reprises Sinatra's label. People buy and know about that label because of him. But in the Columbia days, he's still very much finding his feet. And on a couple of, this is only his third album. And uh, something I've noticed, at least listening to the very early Sinatra stuff, is there seems to be a real push to label Frank Sinatra as uh, like a young Bing Crosby or the next Bing Crosby. So he's, there's very little kind of swing or pep to the music. Uh, there's no kind of, I think people know Sinatra or remember Sinatra for kind of the hint of uh, jazz and swing that he brings to kind of that crooner style. And there is none of that. Uh... <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not quite like that, but um, <laughs> there's, there's none of that on these early records, which I think means that this Christmas album is a bunch of songs that Bing Crosby and other crooners had already sang, and Sinatra is kind of just singing them like those previous singers. So I am left wondering what Sinatra brings to these songs that those previous singers didn't have. Um, which, to be fair, is something that I think people ask with a lot of Christmas albums. Any Christmas album that goes out, I think the immediate question is, what are you bringing to these songs that the million other people who have sung the little drummer boy uh, have not brought to that song. Um, and I think on this one, he does totally fine. It's a serviceable Christmas album. I gave it a three out of five, but I don't really think he's he's bringing much to the table that previous singers have not. Um, that said, like I said, it's it's early days for Sinatra. I'm looking forward to that first Capitol record where I think he, he really gets a chance to shine rather than just being the voice of a larger group. Um, so far, a lot of these, a lot of these albums, people seem to remember the Columbia albums more for the conductor and the orchestra than for Sinatra. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to him becoming a bigger name. So three out of five for Christmas songs by Sinatra, by Frank Sinatra. Uh, perhaps you will listen to it this time of year or next time of year and let us know what you think. Uh, until then, I think it's time for the rundown. All right. down. You gotta pick up those cues, guys. I'm, I'm laying them down for you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, uh, next thing, um, Christian. Uh, yeah. I was sleeping, but in my dreams, I was r running. <laughs> I don't know. From, from Zach. <laughs> hey, yeah, that actually works. Yeah, I'm running down the beach. Yes. <laughs> okay, Mitchell, are you are you prepared to start us off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm ready. sorry. <laughs> I'm not ready yet, Christian. I do have to say. You know when you're trying to go to sleep and you put your ear on the pillow and you hear chugging because of your heart beating? Have you ever heard that before? Yeah. That's oh. what this dream sounded like. Try it next time, Christian. Okay. Let me know how it goes. 
Give it a rating out of five. All right, I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> okay. Three, two, Am I going one. first? Yes, you're going first. Okay, go. omnibus. <laughs> three out of five. Omnibus. Simultaneous yes. door closing cuts. Oh, three out of five. Bed making ASMR. Two out of five. Mumbled room description. Three out of five. Thinking and mumbling. Three out of five. Clearing the throat. Two out of five. Red transition. Four out of five. Spooky. Four out of five. Hotel procedure. Three out of five. Finders keepers. Three out of five. Hmm, give a dog a bone. Four out of five. What we mean by Australia. Two out of five. BBC televised universe. Four out of five. Let's say, for the sake of argument. Uh, three out of five. Internal monologuing. Two out of five. Delicious breakfast. Two out of five. Rumpled. Two out of five. The haunted tattered sheet. Four out of five. Phenomenon. Two out of five. Mitchell, you take this one. Two seconds. Oh, no. Four out of five. Time. <laughs> it was worth it. We had the extra two seconds. I had to hand it off to the impression man. I will say that that tattered sheet effect I think is really good. Uh, and apparently they just... I think it's stupid. They they just they dangled like a ragged <laughs> cloth from some wire and they had a crane coming along next to him on the beach. I think for a for a lo-fi effect like that, it comes across across pretty well. In four eighty p. Yeah, four eighty p. Well, this is the, a lot of these. This was shot on sixteen millimeter, so it's it's a lot harder to mm. blow up and up-res sixteen millimeter than it is thirty five. Even like the mm. best copies of these these older TV broadcasts are often not fantastic. I showed my youngest cousin an old episode of Doctor Who a couple weeks ago, and it was the first time I had ever played it on like a high res TV, and I kind of kind of found myself going, "Oh wow, yeah, <laughs> you can see right into the shadows. You can see all the all the lack of detail." Um, but uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to. Perhaps the most off-the-rails episode of Cookie Pocket I've ever hosted. Um, I hope this was great fun for you. I, I, I hope it was great fun for us. I had great fun. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the holiday specials this year. I, I don't believe mm-hmm. we have anything to immediately preview, but I know we at least nope. hope to host a, a fifth season this coming summer. So we hope you'll, you'll tune back in for that. Maybe there will be a spring special. We did that once before with the Batman. Who knows what could happen this year? Maybe we'll all be very excited about the bike riders. I I don't know. Um, But until we see you next, uh, happy holidays, happy new year, uh, and we'll see you in, in 2024.